Think about where you came from, both on an evolutionary timescale and just on your own personal timescale. We were all a little ball of chemicals once. We were all an unfertilized egg, all of us. That, that, that if you were to look at this, you would say that that right there is just a piece of chemistry it um you 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 know it doesn't uh, you don't want to think that it has um uh, you know inner thoughts uh, beliefs uh, your preferences whatever it's just a bag of chemicals and then very slowly over nine months and a couple of years and whatever you took this journey from being just a piece of physics and chemistry to being what many people will say is completely different right many people will say hey look i am not people and it drives me nuts but people always say you know i'm not a machine right i i am a you know i am a human and i have this and that and i have uh, you know a, a first person perspective and, and a unified uh, you know uh, cognitive system with my own goals and and hopes and dreams and everything fair enough but you got there slowly you didn't you didn't just emerge out of nowhere there was no lightning flash that happens on you know day 71 of development or boom now you're a cognitive unit before that you were just physics that that doesn't happen so so that that journey has to be explained we have to be able to say how is it that you start off with just a bag of chemicals and eventually you become uh some something that can have uh, uh you know opinions and complex metacognition and and, and this kind of uh, you know i know what i know and things like that so so that has to be explained and so not 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 just during development but also during evolution and people talk about evolution all the time how we got from here to there I, they don't actually i I, fe I feel like people don't take um uh development seriously enough because because all the same you know the same folks who who think that that, that you know they as a, as a as a human are this this kind of like really unique thing just walk yourself backwards through time and tell me when that arises because eventually you're you're, you're just gonna be an oocyte if you just you know turn the clock backwards so mm -hmm. so that that needs explaining and what that what that means is the the kind of to me the 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 central mystery of life i think if i had to pick one there's, there's many good ones but if i had to pick one I would say, and, and all of this is in the planaria. It's one of the reasons I love the embryos. I love planaria because the, it's staring you in the face. The, the, the big mystery of life is, is, is scaling, combination. How do little, tiny, individual, simple machines scale up to become bigger machines with hopes and dreams and sentience? That's it. That's the scale. The many to, it's the many to one problem. Right. Uh, you know, that 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 subsumes if you had the answer to that problem, pretty much all the other problems would would take care of themselves. I think it's really this thing that we don't understand at all is where do minds come from? And because all intelligence is collective intelligence, right, there's no such thing as a as an indivisible mind that's not made of parts. There's no such thing as this like like diamond that just, you know, is a single is a single thing. Everything is made of parts. And so given that you're made of parts, you've got to explain how is it that those parts uh, give rise to a centralized problem solving unit with opinions about what ought to happen. And so 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 what I what I think we can do now is tell a story, a pretty a pretty good story of how here on Earth, not necessarily the same way other places, but let's say here on Earth, how matter actually went from being those kinds of pieces with very small, local, very humble sort of sort of nano goals to this larger cognitive system. All right, I think, well, we can, we can just get started. So thank you for being here, Mike or Dr. Michael Levin. Um, Mike is fine. Yeah, thanks yeah. so much for having me. Yeah, cool. No, I'm, I'm really, really happy to get this opportunity. You're doing some really amazing work. And uh, I came across it sort of just by chance. And the deeper I dive in, the more sort of awe I feel for just all the not not just the work itself, but also all the possible implications for 
for science, for philosophy, maybe even for, for spirituality. I mean, it's really wide ranging stuff and uh, we'll see how far we get today. Hopefully we'll, we'll get into to all of that a bit, but uh, Super. Super. yeah. Yeah. If, if you don't mind, um, I think we can kind of just dispense with the credentials and accolades. I think that'll just kind of come out as we go along. Absolutely. Maybe, cool. We can just jump right into, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really captivated by this work with the, the planaria. Can you please tell us what is the work you're doing with these worms? What are they? Uh, you know, what, what is this all about? Yeah, well, let's set the background. So, so uh, planaria are these uh, free living flatworms. They are uh, rather complex. They're similar to our uh, ancestors. So they have true bilateral symmetry. They have a real brain. They have lots of internal organs. They have many of the same neurotransmitters that you and I have. People use them for models of drug addiction and neuroscience and behavior and various things. Okay. So uh, these, these planaria have a number of really incredibly fascinating properties that lots of people besides me study. So one of those properties, and this has been known for hundreds of years, is that they are incredibly regenerative. So if you cut them into pieces and you can cut them in any orientation, uh, and I think the record is something like 275 pieces, every piece, right? Every piece will regrow exactly what's needed no more, no less, to be a perfect little worm. In fact, the old tissue scales down. It literally shrinks while the new tissue is growing so that they can sort of meet each other and, and have a pro properly proportioned worm. So that's, so that's one incredible thing. Uh, they seem to be immortal. Um, there's not really any evidence for, for aging at the level of the organism. So there's no such thing as an old planarian, which has a number of interesting, those two things together have some amazing implications that we need to, that we need to talk about that aren't really studied. But the, the other interesting thing about them is that um, they're, they're fairly smart, so they can learn. They can, they can be trained in various assays. And uh, this guy, James McConnell in the 60s and, and 70s uh, published a number of papers showing that when you train these planaria uh, and then you cut off their heads, the tail will sit there doing nothing until it regenerates a new brain. And then you can find evidence that the animal re remembers the original information, which suggests that the information was not just in the brain, it's, it, it got it stored somewhere else, it, get, it gets imprinted onto this new brain as it develops. And, you know, he, there was a big controversy. He caught a lot of flack over it. Um, it, kind of, it kind of died down. People sort of forgot all about it. We reproduced it using modern, modern methods, automated methods uh, of, of about 10 years ago now. And, and, and he was right. McConnell was absolutely right. They do, they do regenerate their memories in the same way that they regenerate their brain. So uh, these are kind of, so, 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 so this is kind of where mainstream, uh, mainstream work on these worms uh, is, 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 uh, stands today. Uh, there are a couple of there are a couple of really interesting implications of this that people don't talk about, don't often talk about, and so we can we can get into that. Yes, please. Let's let's do it. I mean, okay. Let's start with immortality. That's just you know that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. How do how does that work? Is that because of their their stem cell density or like they they just and anytime a cell gets damaged, they can regenerate it uh, sort of through their their bank of stem cells or how how is how yeah. Does that work? Yeah, maybe. Well, well. To, to start off with, I don't know how it works. If I knew how it works, uh, you know, I, I'd be in Stockholm collecting the the prize, right? So, so, I, so I don't. So, I'm, I'm not going to claim. I'm not going to claim to know how it works. But, but, but I do think we can say some interesting things. Uh, just being able to infinitely replenish your cells is not good enough because that's in fact what we worry about in terms of cancer, right? So, people will often say that animals like humans, which are long lived. 
the reason we're not regenerative is because uh, keeping around a population of these these highly plastic, highly proliferative cells incurs a, a, a you know a, this kind of oncogenic penalty. Now I think that's deeply wrong, but but that's that's you know that's one thing we can we can think of. Um, let's let's think of it this way. Uh, these planaria, at least some species, the way they reproduce is they tear themselves in half, and then they, literally they just tear themselves in half. The front half makes a new tail, the back half makes a new head, and now you got two worms. That's how they reproduce. Okay. So the implications of this are that, um, unlike unlike for us, where where if you have a mutation in your in, or some kind of damage in your cells during your lifetime, that doesn't get passed on to your offspring. Right. And so there's this there's this Weissman's barrier, this protection of the of the germline that enables us to to uh, to kind of keep keep it, uh, keep the germline clean. Um, so so when planaria don't do that, what that means is that every mutation that doesn't kill the stem cell and, and, and they're like something like 30 percent of them is, is stem cells. It means that um, when uh, when they have a mutation in some kind of cell, if that cell doesn't die, it re it populates the next generation, right? Because it has to contribute to the production of the tissue in the in the following round of, of regeneration, and so that means that for 400 million years, these animals that are li literally the animals that are sitting in my in my incubator in the lab right now, for 400 million years, they've been accumulating mutations, and you can see that their their genome is an incredible mess. They they're they're mixoploid, meaning that cells have different numbers of chromosomes. Normally, when you see something like this, you'd say this is a terrible tumor, and yet, so here's the kicker, and yet they are champion regenerators, 100% perfect every single time when you cut them. If you you know if you don't perturb it in some some weird way, uh, they they the anatomy is rock solid. So this this standard idea when people say, well, well, what's responsible for your anatomy? Well, your genome. Yeah, except that, that we don't really understand the relationship between the genome and the anatomy as well as we should, because this is kind of scandalous, right? When your when your genome can basically be be trashed for millions of years and accumulate mutations and have all these other problems. And yet your anatomy is 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 is, is better than any any other organism we know. We have no models to explain this right in your developmental biology textbook you won't find this problem you won't find any models that make that prediction you, you would never make that prediction so so something is something is deeply wrong and i think i have an idea of of of, of what's going on and i think i think it's it's incredibly interesting and probably has to do with their immortality as well but there are many many questions as to why them and why not everybody else and and so on those are open questions that we don't know the answers to yeah Wow. So, so what, what is your theory? What's your, your best guess at what's going on here? Yeah. So my, so my best guess, I'm going to, I'm going to start with uh, an analogy that uh, Steve, Steve Frank uh, gave me a little while ago, which, which I've been thinking about. I think it, it's, it's very apropos here. You know, um, nowadays in a lot of computer uh, high, high um, kind of uh, mission critical computing, they have these RAID arrays, right? So these are arrays, arrays of hard drives that are basically uh, in, in software duplicating data across the array so that if one hard drive fails, you still have all the information and you just swap out the drive and you keep going, right? Mm -hmm. so, so Steve pointed out that something very interesting happened that once, once RAID arrays started to become common, the quality of the hardware of the media, the drives themselves, has, went down because mm -hmm. your, hardware, your, your media doesn't need to be very good anymore because the RAID takes care of all that in software, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting thing. Now think about, you know, that's a kind of ratchet, right? Because once you've done that, now you you can't go back because if you stop doing the raid your media is is junk so so you can't you know it's, it doesn't work well anymore mm -hmm. but it also means that going forward into the future 
one of the things you can do instead of trying to make the media better and better, you actually get more payoff by making the software better and better by making the raid itself. And in fact, that's that's what's happened. The media has gone down. The raid quality has gone up. So um, the thing with the thing with 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 evolution, and I think that that uh, there are many examples of not just in plenary, but but there are many, many. And I, I love all these examples because I think they're very, very deep. One of the things that that is the case is that evolution does not work with passive materials, right? The way that engineers in the off past might have worked with copper or wood. But basically, it, it all it does is sit there. You, you sort of anything you want it to do, you have to make sure that it's going to do. You have to micromanage everything. Mm-hmm. Evolution works with an agential material. It works with cells. Cells used to be their own organisms. Cells have agendas. Cells have ways of processing information. They have goals that they 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 have preferences of certain states. They have ability to solve problems of various kinds in different spaces. Mm-hmm. So they have some competencies. So what this means is, it means that when you uh, when you make uh, when you make certain certain changes, let's say there's a mutation and something goes wrong, if your cells have these competencies they can often make up for it. I'll give you a simple example. In the frog, we discovered that, you know, tad- tadpoles need to become frogs. And so in order to do that, they have to rearrange their face. So the eyes have to move forward, the jaws move, every- everything moves around. So you might think that what they have is some kind of uh, hardwired, um, you know, every every organ moves a certain distance and then uh, and then you just get to where you're going in the right direction, right? So we made we made these so-called Picasso frogs. We, we basically start off with everything in the wrong place. The eyes are on top of the head, the jaws are off to the side, every- everything is scrambled they still become really nice frogs. And that's because it's not a hardwired scheme. It's an error minimization scheme. What happens is every organ moves around, starting with a wrong position, but it moves around in novel paths. Sometimes it goes too far and actually has to double back. And it keeps doing that until it lands in the correct position. So, so, so they have these competencies, right? You can, it means that as evolution is, is playing around with different mutations, you make a mutation that puts your eye off kilter, no problem, because the eye is going to get to where it needs to go. So you don't actually, right? So when it's time to evaluate the fitness of that individual, you don't see the fact that the genome had a problem. Now, the good news is that that same mutation may have done something else that's good for the organism. So you get a chance to explore that without being dead and, and having zero fitness because your eyes don't work. In fact, we've shown that you can even, we, we've, we've put eyes on the tails of tadpoles and they can see perfectly well, right? So the plasticity yeah. of the system is amazing. And so that competency means that the, your actual genome is somewhat shielded from selection. Selection can't see how good your genome really was because your your actual body is not just a function of your genome. It's actually a function of all the competencies that maybe have made up for some defects in your genome. Yeah. So that's can, just to double check I'm I'm understanding here. So in the the metaphor you first used, the the genes or genome would be sort of like the hardware and then there's some other property that's functioning like software. It's some other exactly. form of information that's exactly. saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not so much a form of information as much as it's a capability. It's the fact that the hardware encodes problem solving um, modules. You know, even single cells are homeostatic uh, kinds of agents, which means they solve problems. If some parameters out of whack, they will take action to try to get back into the right state. They solve problems. And we can talk about how that scales to like a bigger, you know, intelligence and bigger problem solving. And so, but, but you're exactly right. That's, that's the, that's exactly the mapping I'm suggesting. So, so once you're on that road, once evolution or, or selection can no longer see what exactly is going on with the genome, it's much better off, you know, all the progress comes from improving the software. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's improve the competencies because then then the body can be more and more robust. 
improving the, the genome is actually really hard because you don't know when you select the best individuals, you actually don't really know who had the best genome because, I mean, in egregious cases you do, but, but most of the time, the, 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 the competencies of the subunits can really mask that. So I think in Planaria, this ratchet ran, ran away really, you know, kind of exponentially where all of the effort evolutionarily has gone to improving the software. It's, it's gone to improving the ability of the subunits to remodel after injury after you know mutation after all kinds of all the things that are happening to it that's that's what we're looking at when we see planaria we see an example where evolution has put just all that effort into improving the software Mm -hmm. and is is the idea that then this insight is also applicable to other forms of life or these are just sort of an anomaly that do their own thing and it doesn't really pertain to us well, no, no, I don't think it's an anomaly. It, it's it's that, that kind of those kind of competencies are all over the place, right? And and we we can talk about um, we can talk about uh, other examples from from you know from humans on on. But 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 there is an open question as to why it's so profound in planaria. I mean, you know, ax, axolotls will regenerate most parts of their body, but they're not immortal, and they don't do quite as well as as planaria, right? Deer regenerate their antlers, and and so you know, humans regenerate their liver. So. Uh, this this ability to solve anatomical problems, physiological problems, transcriptional problems is everywhere. It's at the basis of all life. But there are some very specific evolutionary dynamics that have made planaria special. I don't know what those are, but I think that's what we're looking at. I think we're looking at a kind of this this runaway intelligence ratchet that operates everywhere, but in planaria it seems to have really you know sort of gone for it. But yeah. but this yeah. this kind of thing. I mean, look at look at human monozygotic twins, right? We don't have any technology that when you cut it in half each half sort of reproduces the other half and now you got two of them. We, we don't have anything that works like that. You know, mammalian embryos work like that. You can, you, can, you, can, you can cut an embryo in half and you don't get two half embryos, you get two perfectly normal monozygotic twins. So that, right, that ability to, uh, to make up for radical, radical changes, is, it's not just about planaria, it's all over the place. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is the mechanism that you used in your experiments, right? I mean, that's how you are able to put eyes on tails and give the worms two heads and all of that, right? Is you're, you're using that ratchet rather than well, changing the, the genome, you're, you're working with that, that level of information encoding. Yeah, that, 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 right. That requires us to, to kind of talk about what's the mechanism for that, um, for, for that, that competency. So, so, so I've argued, and there may be others, I'm not saying this is the only mechanism, but I've argued that a really uh, powerful way to look at all of this is as the navigation of morphogenetic, morphospace. So, so morphospace is simply the, the space of all possible anatomical configurations, right? So you might have, so, so let's say if you're, um, uh, you know, if you're making a face, you might have one axis is sort of the distance between the eyes and another axis is how big your, you know, in the case of birds or something, you know, how big your beak is and different shapes. So it's a, it's a complex multidimensional shape space. And you need to navigate that space from wherever you are now or wherever you've landed by mutations, by injury, by, you know, by teratogens, whatever. You need to navigate that space towards the correct region that corresponds to the proper target morphology for that species. The way, and, so, and so what navigates it is the collective intelligence of cells. So, so cells get together. There's a kind of um, a group dynamic that allows them to... to uh, and we can talk about that scaling, how that how that happens. But but it's a kind of um, it's a kind of swarm swarm intelligence. And what it does is it navigates that space. Now the mechanism that enables them to do that is exactly the same mechanism that brains and neurons 
have chosen to uh, to to use to to tie themselves together, right? So we are all collective intelligences, right? We're all bags of of cells and neurons and so on. And what what ties that together into a single kind of um, you know this 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 is a first person perspective that we're a unified. You know what? What? What does it feel like to be a, a, a big bag of neurons? Well, we know what that feels like because that's what we are, right? And so, um, and so, what? What? What evolution did for brains was to do that via bioelectricity. So, so an electrical network that processes information that that is able to coarse grain observations, learn from experience, all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. The brain chose that not um, sort of from 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 scratch. It 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 improved uh, and, and speed optimized and sort of upgraded that capability that was here since the time of bacterial biofilms. That, that ability to use electricity to scale these cognitive networks is extremely ancient. And that's what allows these cells to do that. that that's exactly what we exploit in our, in our work. So in our work, we try, we try not to, both, both for biomedical reasons and for, for, for you know, sort of conceptual reasons, we try not to be focused on the molecular hardware per se, but to ask what basically computational questions, right? And, and in my in my mind, I, I'm basically a computer scientist that works in living media. That's all. It's, it's, you know, we just work in different different media. But but I think this is all a branch of computer science, really, because what you're really asking is how does this collection make decisions? How does it remember what it's supposed to, what shape it's supposed to be? How does it know where it is now? How does it know what effectors it has to move from from here to there? And and it's very powerful addressing the. Um, the bioelectrical uh, layer that controls all this is extremely powerful because it allows you to do interesting things like reset the target morphology, right? Reset the memory of where this this collective intelligence thinks it's going. That is really, I mean, think about um, what, what's 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 magic about your thermostat, right? What's what's ma- one of the things that's magic about it is that as long as you know how to read and write that set point, so you know how the how the target information is encoded, you don't need to know anything else about it. You don't have to you, you don't have to know how the rest of the thermostat works. You just need to know that it's a goal seeking system. You need to know uh, how to read and write that that goal state. And um, and uh, and and the amount of effort you have to put in is actually very, very small because you're taking advantage of the fact that this thing already knows how to pursue goals. You mm-hmm. just have to respecify. Right. Mm-hmm. So that that tiny little bit of intelligence, that tiny little little bit of like nano goal directedness that it has is extremely powerful. And evolution takes takes advantage of that it has to because it's dealing with an agential material that it has to right modify what these cells are going to do by giving them rewards and punishments and um you know incentives and signals and so on and and we do the same thing so we can go in and we can rewire um you know we can we can uh basically uh just just briefly change the 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 information that's stored in these electrical circuits that tells the collective what it is they should make and this is how we can make two-headed worms we can make worms that have the, the heads belonging to other species of worms right wow. um right and all without changing the dna so 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 we've made we've made worms with heads from another species of 100 to 150 million years evolutionary distance there's nothing wrong with the, with the genome the genome is exactly you know wild type and um and and you know we can also make frogs that look like other species of frogs and so on and yeah it's a, and it's a, and it's a very powerful way to interact with the system because you are really taking advantage of what's what's central about this that it really is a a a kind of protocognitive system yeah wow so let me let me try and uh summarize that as a way to make check my understanding and also just kind of slow things down a bit for people who might be struggling to catch up so what i what i'm hearing you say is that the system we're familiar with in our brains in terms of bioelectricity that's actually just basically the latest iteration of a very ancient technology 
And what we consider to be our bodies is actually sort of a set of nested tiers of intelligence that are all working on the same bioelectrical principles. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm cheating a bit because I've, I've read some of your papers, but but we're, you know, if we look at the cell level, the organ level, the, the organism level, the brain level, it's, it's, you know, Russian dolls or, you know, nested tiers, whatever we want to call it. It's, it's slightly faster and more complex versions of the same sort of technology all working together to create what we consider to be a human being. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is this is this is absolutely right. And and you know, a couple of uh, a couple of footnotes to that. One is I'm certainly not saying that bioelectricity is the only important thing. So of course, yeah. cells communicate mechanically and and uh, chemically and so on. I'm also not saying that bioelectricity is the only way that intelligence comes to be. You know, on this planet, that seems to be how it went. I'm sure somewhere else there's some other way of doing it. But but mm-hmm. uh, you know, but but bioelectricity is is has has some really interesting uh, features, which is why we use it for com- compute computation devices and so on. Yeah. And um, all of these, you know. Know, what's what's really important is not just the technology and, and if you want to we can we can we can get into this uh, there are some very basic principles that start at the single cell level if even in fact even before that right uh, start at where very simple agents are uh, battling certain inevitable difficulties in this in this real practical world that scale up all the way through to as far as i can tell uh, have have implications for human psychology and some of the failure modes that that we have as as you know as as, as cognitive individuals and so on it's it's not just the technology there's a kind of um it, it informational architecture underneath all of this mm-hmm. that that is, is is pervasive for long before um brains you know brains actually showed up yeah so there, there's like a, a deep symmetry between the way cells function, organs function, brains function. And we can maybe look at some of the ways brain function to inform our understanding of cells and vice versa. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the one of the one of the um, uh, exercises that I often do with new students is I have them find a paper, pick a neuroscience paper and throw it in Microsoft Word and just do a find replace. And anywhere it says neuron, say cell, and anywhere it says milliseconds, say minutes or hours. And then you have a developmental biology paper and you can and you can read and you can read it and gain, you know, gain lots of lots of interesting insights because and, I, and I've actually like like we've published, you know, with with Giovanni Pizzullo and others, we've published tables side by side. Here are here are 25 deep concepts from neuroscience. Here's what it is in developmental biology. And, and what's cool is that the tools, right? We, we steal all of our tools from neuroscientists. Like we do all of the same stuff, optogenetics and ion channel targeting and uh, neurotransmitters, the same, the same concept, you know, active inference, all the same uh, perceptual control theory, all, all the same tools. They can't tell, the tools can't tell the difference between mm-hmm. neuroscience and the rest of the body. And that tells you something very important, right? It tells you that this distinction, because we have different departments, you have the department of neuroscience and the department of molecular biology, and they often you know, don't talk to each other that much. Um, all those, and the journals are different and the funding agencies are different. All those distinctions are all made up, right? They're, 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 you know, they're, not, they're not deep. They're not like, like many distinctions, they're not fundamental. Yeah, yeah but the, the way you found to, to operate on on this level like uh, affecting the the bioelectricity of cells is the, the mechanisms are different right so you're not you're not using electromagnetic pulses to change the the charges within cells you're working on a different time scale and you're using medications is that right or how how is it that you did these, these these changes with the the worms, for example. Yeah, there's a there's a few ways to do it. The reason we're not using applied, so yeah, we don't use any applied electric fields, magnetic fields, electromagnetic waves. We don't do any of that. The only reason is that that just for purely engineering reasons, those are those those technologies are really tough 
uh, to use to make the kinds of changes that we want. They're blunt tools. They work okay on very rapid timescales, millisecond timescales. They don't work well for setting up long-term gradients. Uh, so it's purely a practical, a practical thing. There's nothing wrong with with, with those techniques. Um, what we do, we do a couple of things. We use drugs, so so pharmacology that targets specific ion channels, gap junctions, basically targeting the native machinery. Right. Mm -hmm. We use optogenetics. So in some cases, you can use light to turn ion channels on and off, exactly as neuroscientists do. And then sometimes we can put in new channels. We can block it. We can we can delete channels uh, from cells. We can put in RNA encoding new channels, things like that. So you can do you know you can do those kinds of things. You can think of all, all of these ion channels are, they're a programming interface that is exposed by the system to the user. Now the user, now who's the user? The user is the other cells of the organism. They are, it is evolution itself. It is uh, potentially parasites, potentially conspecific organisms, but, but, but that's the interface that's available for anybody who wants to hack it, whether, whether that be the evolutionary process itself, the other cells in the body or us as engineers. And so you've you've been able to intervene uh, on the embryonic level, like creating a, a new embryo, right? But also with a, an adult, like for example, you can amputate the leg of a frog, and then change the charges in in cellular structure to basically like tell its body to grow a new leg, which is something a frog would never do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done it. We've done it in adult frogs. I mean, the planaria are adults. So, so all the plenary experiments are done in adults. We've done it in adult with, with David Kaplan's group. Um, we've done things in adult uh, human stem cells. So, so, so um, uh, adult, adult mesenchymal stem cells from human patients. So we've done those kinds of things in, in vitro. Um, you know, we're working, on, we're working on mice, adult mice now. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not really an embryonic thing, although obviously embryonic development makes extensive use of this because that's when you're trying to um, you know, sort of, sort of uh, embody all this, all this information that's there, and, and create the structures. But, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not, it's not limited to to embryos by any means. Okay, okay. <clears throat> so I guess maybe if we could just zoom out for for a sec, because I'm I'm a layperson. I'm not an expert in biology at all, and I think a lot of people listening are are probably a, sort of reeling a little bit right now. Like, what what are you talking about? Electricity and the body and cells, intelligence and and all this stuff, right? So, so I mean. Basically, based on on coming across your work, I started researching a lot more, just trying to understand what is bioelectricity, how does it work, and it seems to me that it's in in a lot of different functions within the the human body. Like it is, as you say, it's it's a form of sort of telling the the body what to do on a cellular level and an organ level, but it's also things that are are really basic, like just blood moving through your veins or maintaining the blood brain barrier and things like that. There's there's bioelectricity almost at every at every level within the body, right? It's a it's a pervasive force that's basically fundamental to, to the way our bodies function. Is that, is that correct? This, this, is, this is true, but, but I think it's really important to keep a distinction between bioelectricity as a piece of physics that you need to track Right. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, if you look at a rock, uh, there's electricity there because there's electrons, uh, you know, swirling around and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But, but, but uh, what, what biology is really good at is harnessing the electricity for computations. So it's not just physics. It's not just yet another kind of piece of, um, you know, electrochemistry that you need to keep track of as you study an embryo. It's actually the layer that maintains the information. And so just to kind of touchstone to things that, that people are feel comfortable with, in your computer, right? In your in your RAM, when you have uh, in your in the computer's memory, when you have um, you know a spreadsheet or something in, in memory, 
what is the electricity doing? There's some physics there, and that same physics is all over the universe. It's the same physics. However, mm -hmm. there's something very specific going on, which is that the patterns of that electricity encode information that can be interpreted in particular ways by the user and by other by other systems. And that's what's magic, right? It's the it's the encoding of information of instructions. It's not just the the the, the physics of like electricity happens to be really good as an encoding medium. You know, mm -hmm. good luck trying to do that with let's say um, fluid flows or something. You can't, you know, not that you can't, but it would, it would just harder. Um, so that's so you know that's kind of that's kind of the, the the first thing. And and just to kind of pull back on all of this, I mean, I think you're right. Um, uh, it's good it's good to kind of take a take a big picture view of why any of this matters. Look. Uh, Think about where you came from, both on an evolutionary time scale and just on your own personal time scale. We were all a little ball of chemicals once. We were all an unfertilized egg, all of us. That, that, that if you were to look at this, you would say that that right there is just a piece of chemistry. It um, you, you, you know, it doesn't uh, you don't want to think that it has, um, uh, you know, inner thoughts, uh, beliefs, uh, your preferences, whatever. It's just a bag of chemicals. And then very slowly over nine months and a couple of years and whatever, you took this journey from being just a piece of physics and chemistry to being what many people will say is completely different, right? Many people will say, hey, look, I am not, people, and it drives me nuts, but people always say, you know, I'm not a machine, right? I, I am a, you know, I am a human and I have this and that, and I have, uh, you know, a, a first person perspective and, and a unified, uh, you know, uh, cognitive system with my own goals and, and hopes and dreams and everything. Fair enough, but you got there slowly. You didn't. You didn't just emerge out of nowhere. There was no lightning flash that happens on you know day seventy one of development, or boom. Now you're a cognitive unit. Before that, you were just physics. That that doesn't happen. So so that that journey has to be explained. We have to be able to say how is it that you start off with just a bag of chemicals and eventually you become uh, some something that can have uh, a, a, you know a, a, opinions and complex metacognition and and, and this kind of uh, you know I know what I know and things like that. So so that has to be explained. And so not 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 just during development, but also during evolution. And people talk about evolution all the time, how we got from here to there. I, they don't actually. I I, I feel like people don't take. Um, uh, development seriously enough because because all the same you know the same folks who who think that that, that you know they as a, as a as a human are this this kind of like really unique thing just walk yourself backwards through time and tell me when that arises because eventually you're you're, you're just gonna be an oocyte if you just you know turn the clock backwards so so that that needs explaining and what that what that means is the the kind of to me the 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 central mystery of life i think if i had to pick one there's, there's many good ones but if i had to pick one I would say, and, and all of this is in the planaria. This is one of the reasons I love the embryos. I love planaria because the, it's staring you in the face. The, the, the big mystery of life is, is, is scaling, combination. How do little, tiny, individual, simple machines scale up to become bigger machines with hopes and dreams and sentience? That's it. That's the scale. The many to, it's the many to one problem. Right. Uh, you know, that 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 subsumes if you had the answer to that problem, pretty much all the other problems would would take care of themselves. I think it's really this thing that we don't understand at all is where do minds come from? And because all intelligence is collective intelligence, right, there's no such thing as a as an indivisible mind that's not made of parts. There's no such thing as this like like diamond that just, you know, is a single is a single thing. Everything is made of parts. And so given that you're made of parts, you've got to explain how is it that those parts uh, give rise to a centralized problem solving unit with opinions about what ought to happen. And so 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 what I what I think we can do now is tell a story, a pretty a pretty good story of how here on Earth, not necessarily the same way other places, but let's say here on Earth, how matter actually went from 
being those kinds of pieces with very small local very humble sort of sort of nano goals to this larger cognitive system mm -hmm. and, and bioelectricity is a central part of that that's 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 my that's a story i know how to tell there may be a there may be other stories that people will tell in the future but but the story that i know how to tell leads right through bioelectricity is that scaling that glue i call i call about the bioelectricity um and some other things like stress and, and some other things i call that a cognitive glue because it really that's what it does it's a medium that it's not just physics it's a medium that allows that scaling of cognition mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm just letting that sink in <laughs> yeah hmm. maybe maybe we can bring that to a very sort of practical example it's sort of the counter example of, of cancer right and that's yeah. that's an example you've explored a lot of sort of what happens when things go wrong yeah. When, when that process breaks down, that's, you're arguing at least, that's that's what causes cancer. When that that information sharing process breaks down, that's what causes yeah. a tumor, basically? Speci yeah, specifically. So so here's the story I'll tell. And, and I think we have to be humble about the fact that cancer is a lot of different diseases. And I'm, I'm certainly not saying that this is the only good perspective on cancer, but, but I think this is a valuable perspective. Um, one of the cool things, well, one of the things to start with is that the question isn't uh, why do we have cancer? The question is why is there ever anything but cancer? In other words, you start, you start life as a collection of amoebas, and now you're telling me that these amoebas work together to build a salamander. And by the way, if I cut off the salamander's arm, these amoebas will, 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 will you know, burst into action and restore that arm perfectly. And if you cut it again, they'll do it again. And so that's so 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 what are they doing? They are working, they have a goal-directed behavior. How do you know? Because I know when I damage it, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know what what it'll what it'll, you know, and I know when it stops. You see, that's the key about goals is that if you don't believe in goals, why does it stop when it makes a correct salamander arm, right? Mm -hmm. So um so now you have to say, why are those cells cooperating towards a very large goal? No individual cell knows what a limb is or how many or what a finger is or how big a finger is. Individual cells can't tell that. So what you have is this scaling through multicellularity, through evolution and development. You have this incredible scaling of goals where the little tiny goals of single cells. What are the goals of single cells? Well, keep the pH right, keep the metabolism right. Uh, someday become two cells instead of one. That, that Those are little tiny cell level goals. Those have gotten scaled up into very large goals like make a limb, make a liver, make an eye, and by the way, make sure there's two eyes and make sure they're you know uh, uh, sort of um, you know anterior to the to the nose and that that kind of stuff. So um, that 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 what's that's what happens in development. Now, whatever system uh, whatever system uh, uh, ensures that that happens, and and, par and partially it's the bioelectric system. Of course, occasionally there are going to be breakdowns, and what happens when there's a breakdown is is the following. It's not that the cells become more selfish, and actually this is a, uh, an important uh, theme in, let's say, game theory um, types of models of cancer that, oh, the cells are now selfish, they're you know, not caring for the rest of the organism and so on. It's not that the cells are more selfish, their self is smaller. What's happened is that that boundary, whereas before the boundary of the self was right around each single cell, right? It's just basically the size of a single cell. Mm -hmm. That boundary mm -hmm. is now huge when you've got cells making an organ, that's, that's rather large, and all of the cells, their, their individual identities are partially wiped because they're not just a collection of parts, they're working as a single unit with one memory of a goal of what they're supposed to do, and they're working towards that goal. Mm -hmm. and, and, I can and I can tell a story about how, how, those, how those memories scale up. 
uh, when that process goes wrong, what goes awry, and that process can go awry in a number of different ways. For example, oncogenes, um, uh, carcinogens. Um, there's all all kinds of different stress. There's all kinds of different ways to do it. But what happens is when when a single cell starts to disconnect from the rest of the network, right? So literally electrically disconnect from the rest of the network. It no longer that that boundary between self and world that that boundary is very flexible. People think that you know they think about this obvious. Well, I mean, here's the edge of my body. That's it. That's that's the inside and outside. But to cells, that's not obvious at all. For every single cell, its cellular neighbors, those are the outside world, right? The, those are the those are the environment. So so where you put that 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 computational boundary, where does the self um, uh, end and the outside world begin? That that can move, right? And it can shrink and grow. And so when cells literally become electrically disconnected from each other that computational boundary shrinks because as far as they're concerned the rest of the body is just external environment to them and they go and they roll backwards to their ancient unicellular lifestyle go where life is good reproduce as much as you want and that's metastasis and so what we've been doing is um we've been uh trying to explain trying to test the predictions of that theory so, so that theory has predictions one of the predictions is that if you were to artificially force those cells to remain connected to their neighbors then no matter what else was going on with them, let's say, you know, they have other genomes, let's say they have oncogene expression, as long as you force it to be connected to its neighbors, um, then they should, they, should, they should participate in normal morphogenesis. They should be making nice, healthy organs. And we've shown that in the frog model, we've shown that. And in fact, most, more recently, we've shown something similar in human glioblastoma in, in vitro. In a, this is just a couple of weeks ago, it's a new paper. So uh, yeah, this, this idea that, that what we can really be playing with is not just the hardware, meaning the genetically encoded components, um, not just individual cell states, but actually the degree of unification of cells towards a common purpose. All of this is about, and so and so this is why. So, so I've got this I've got this model called the cognitive light cone model, and it's this idea that every kind of creature, be it evolved, be it engineered, synthetic, alien, software, whatever it's made of, I don't care what it's made of, anything that's an agent of some type, right? Mm -hmm. now, no matter how it got here or what it's made of, um, you can, you can, there's a deep symmetry that, that all agents have in common. What do they all have in common? The ability to pursue goals. But what kind of goals? Some, some agents pursue, pr pursue very tiny goals. E. coli pursue things like local uh, sugar concentration. Some some agents like collections of cells pursue bigger goals like hey let's make a finger of the correct size. Some some agents pursue massive goals. I mean there are humans literally working towards world peace. That's their goal. They can they can actually they can actually envision that as a goal or you know some sort of global financial state that they're working towards and and that's something they can work towards. So the scale of the goals towards which you can work right is it says something very very uh, very important it, it it sets your your cognitive structure as a as a as an individual as a self it it demarcates the boundaries of of your of your cognitive self mm -hmm. yeah so so kind of in the in the spirit of what you said earlier about uh, doing the the search and replace from neuroscience into into microbiology i guess i've I've been really struck by your work in the possibilities of, of doing that the other way around, right? So if the, the operating principles here are uh, on our most fundamental units, we need to have a, a strong charge, positive and negative charge, and we enable, need to be able to communicate that with our neighbors, right? That's kind of, that's what makes a cell function, right? That in, in my understanding. And if, if that connection is broken in any way, that's when conflict starts, cancer starts, you know, dysfunction in some form starts. And just the, the way you're describing cancer, it immediately struck me as a metaphor for for human relationships, right? It's not a question of altruism versus selfishness. It's just, do I consider you to be a part of me, 
right? How big is my idea of self? If I consider, yeah. you know, in, in it, this can be on the level of nation states, it can be on the level of a, of a relationship, you know, with, with a, a wife or a husband or, you know, whoever, if, if you consider, okay, we are one unit together, then, you know, for better, for worse, we're going to do what we can to make our unit go forward. If at some point that idea is, is broken and we say, no, I'm a unit, you're a separate unit, then, you know, cancer is inevitable, conflict is inevitable, you know? And so it's, I mean, I know it's a, it's a sort of a, a silly example, but it's, I think it's, to me, it really struck home this idea that you know, the, the sky's really the limit with how far we can take this, this idea of recapitulation of just uh, different iterations of the, the same technology, the same processes, and really yeah. just, just kind of, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing to me how, how far these parallels seem to extend. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And we can talk about some, I, I think there are some important implications that, that can extend upwards. Um, I think we have to be very careful uh, for the following reason. I think, I think, I think there are uh, two ways that this can go badly wrong. So the first way is, right, is to uh, really fall in love with, with the idea of, of competition in the sense of every man for himself and to really take uh, uh, you know kind of basal darwinism as some sort of uh, some sort of normative ideal and we know how that works out that doesn't work out well at all right uh, so, you know in terms of history um, you can make any you can make a, a similar mistake in the other direction which i think also works out very poorly which is which is to go all the way towards collectivism and say look um, so here's a thought and this has been floated to me numerous times where somebody will say oh this is amazing i see what's going on these gap junctions these cells connect with each other and when they connect with each other, because they're 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 so closely connected, there's no room for for uh, co competition or or defection. Anything I do to you comes back to me immediately because we're connected. So we are a single unit. It, it, you get cooperation for for free basically, right? And mm -hmm. and so yeah, so so we should all just be sort of gap junction together and and into this massive like Borg uh, you know sort of collective, and then and then life will be good, right? So so I think we have plenty of historical examples around that. That 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 doesn't work either. And here's why here's why both of those things you you can't just export those things into 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 society. Mm -hmm. The fundamental thing that's in question here that we do not understand, we don't have a good science of it, is when you make a collective mind what is that mind going to want to do? Because we, we are terrible at guessing that, we are terrible at recognizing collective minds, we are terrible at knowing how to manipulate them. We don't have any idea. I mean, when you, this is, this is an example I, I, I use all the time, when you um, uh, go out, uh, you know, let's say, let's say you go out for a night of drinking or you, you're gonna go, you're gonna go rock climbing, right? And you're gonna tear the, the, the skin off your palms and you're gonna have a great time, right? Mm -hmm. And do you lose any sleep over what happened to those cells that you had on your, on your palms, right? No. Because you have these massive goals, like I'm going to go rock climbing, I'm going to get fit, I'm going to, somebody's going to, you know, uh, take a picture of me for this uh, climbing magazine, whatever your goals are, those goals are so far from anything that, that, that your parts, let's say your cells are capable of understanding, right, mm -hmm. to them. What, what, what's what's their experience? Look at their experience from from their perspective. Yeah, it's a massacre. I, I've, ju I've just been massacred. Why? It moves in mysterious ways, man. Like the universe is is inscrutable. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like there's a purpose to what's going on most of the time. I mean, you know, every night I get I get this cream that you know that's pretty good, and I like that, and you know, and that's good. But every once in a while, man, it's just it's just a massacre. Why? Who the hell knows? And so and so that's that's the thing, right? The thing about collective minds is that they will be they will be operating on a plane where they don't necessarily care at all about what they're what their subunits are, uh, do, are doing, right? The, the quality of life for their subunits. Now, 
depending on you as an observer, you will have radically different opinions about that. If, you're, if your scale of an observer is human scale or, or let's say evolutionary scale, you will say, oh, it's worth it. Who cares what happens to the cells? Look, we've had this lineage of this amazing organism that's doing all this great stuff. It ended, you know, it's going to end up on Mars. It's going to do all these things. Ah, oh, fantastic. Okay, that's one perspective. You might have another perspective, right, from, from, the, from the level of your parts that are saying, uh, this is a massacre and you for, for what now you're going to do what I don't, that doesn't sound worth it to me at all none, none of this other stuff sounds worth it to me so so we got to be really careful and what we're what we need to what we need to develop is a science of being able to predict the cognition of emergent uh, collective agents we don't have any such thing um you know it, it, we're nowhere near and, and 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 let me tell you it's a um it's a it's a existential level kind of a problem for, uh, for, 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 for humanity, because we are going to be surrounded by these things. We are making them all the time, not, not only, you know, social and, and financial structures, but um, internet of things, swarm robotics, uh, right? And this is, you know, this stuff is ancient, you know, this, this problem is ancient in, in, in science fiction, you know, the, the kind of Skynet problem. You make this stuff, you have no idea what the collective is gonna want. It is not just sort of some easy linear um, composition of the parts that went in. It's not just that we are all good, we're gonna tie ourselves together and the collective is gonna be good. It doesn't work like that. Um, you have, in fact, in fact, something that uh, I only realized fairly recently, we were doing some work on, you, you know that in, in the embryo, um, during embryogenesis, your organs and tissues compete with each other. They literally compete for information, for um, information molecules, for metabolics. And you might think that's really strange. I mean, we all have the same genetics. We were kind of told the story that genetic cooperation, right? Because we're all the same genes and so on. Why are they, why are they competing for each other? And we, we, we did this, uh, and this is unpublished work. So take this with a grain of salt, but we did the simulation uh, and we basically, the, the, we a whole study of, of these uh, evolutionary simulations. And we basically found out that one of the things that evolution likes to do is to pit the parts against each other even in scenarios where it could have chosen a different path where they could all get all the resources they need and they, you know sort of could all get along it actually chose a a um a path of conflict and scarcity because that enables it to coordinate the parts for a global purpose let's say embryogenesis because by competing with it's a long story but by competing for limited resources it's like um it's like uh it enables us to coordinate if if you know if there's a limited amount of resources and i take half and you look and you see only half left you know that i've taken half so you so we now now we've exchanged information right it's a way competition is a way to exchange information mm -hmm. evolution loves to use that so most all i'm saying is when you make these larger scale systems they can do all kinds of stuff you might not think. For example, pit the parts against each other, uh, you know, and, and invent a scarcity that doesn't need to be there. That stuff is emergent. It's really hard to predict. So we, we have, you're right, that all of this is a call for a new science of collective minds before, long before we try any of the stuff in, in social policy. Yeah. Yeah, the, the fall of the British Empire comes to mind there. And then you have the British Empire, as it started to collapse, started putting different parts of it of itself against itself as a way to try and maintain the stability of the empire as a whole didn't, didn't mm. work out too well Interesting. but Interesting. Uh, yeah I, mean, I think there's there's lots of examples there but but am i right in saying your light cone model is sort of a first essay at creating this sort of theory of collective mind sort of trying to imagine where artificial intelligence might might lead us is that is that correct yeah, I'm not going to. Well, I'm certainly not going to claim it's the first one. People, I, people have tried this sort of thing before. I think. Dear uh, first, dear first. I, I don't mean the first. Oh, know. oh, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. It was. I mean, it, it really, it really came out of. Um, 
uh, I, I was at a conference uh, at a, at a um, I was at a Templeton conference in like 2018, I think, uh, where the, the organizers challenged us to come up with a framework on which truly diverse intelligences could be compared, right? <laughs> because because you know people do study you know intelligence and cognition. And they and and you know when they want to think about something weird, they go to octopus or you know occasionally you know ant colonies or termite colonies or something. And I and I thought, well, let's let's take this really seriously. Let's go very broad. I mean, what we have on Earth is an n of one experiment. It's an n of one run through of of this evolutionary kind of phylogenetic lineage. It could have gone many different ways. There are certainly new. Um, new kinds of engineered uh, uh, intelligences that we're going to hybrid intelligence, you know, humans with all their parts replaced and, and whatnot and hybrids, you know, brains driving vehicles and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there may be exobiological examples, they may be software examples, let's come up with some framework that abstracts the irrelevancies. And to me, I mean, I have this very much, um, you know, kind of a functionalist view where what you're made of and how you got here, I think, is not nearly as important as what your cognition is like. But what do we all have in common? What do all, all uh, anything you would call an agent or an intelligence, what does that have in common? It has some degree of pursuing goals of some size, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it fundamentally is. And then it has intelligence, which I define as some degree of competency at pursuing those goals in whatever space. So you might be, if you're an insulin pump, you're like a smart insulin pump, you're a robot in physiological space. You don't move around in three-dimensional space, you move around in physiological space, the space of blood chemistry um, and, and so on. So so all kinds of, so it could be all any any kind of space, but you have some, some competencies and you have some, the scale of the goals that you're capable of representing. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So uh, we're gonna get into how that applies to Buddhism and sort of higher level, philosophical spiritual ideas um but i want to work our way slowly because there's there's a lot of interesting stuff to, to touch on the way and it, it seems like that might be a point to just ask you what do you consider to be a self how do you define a self yeah uh, my, my definition so 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 just to just to uh, put down some ground rules for for all of this stuff i think that the way to do all of this i i, I think all of this needs to be um, I, have a, I have a very engineering approach to all of this. So mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm not just interested in, you know, sort of bare philosophy or um, the kinds of pre, um, pre-commitments that people have to things, right? So, so people will often have specific uh, things that they, that they take as a, as, a, as, a, as a basis. For example, they'll say, uh, I'm, I'm a reductionist. I want all my explanations in the form of chemistry, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of biologists feel that way. Well, not really a reductionist because you don't really want quantum foam explanations. You want chem you just sort of picked chemistry as your favorite, but okay. Right. Um, right. So, so something like that, or somebody else will say, you know, Morgan's can, and they will say the best explanations are the, are the mechanical ones always err on the side of less mind and more, more mechanism, or people will say, um, there are, you know, there are, my thermostat does not have uh, beliefs and, and, um, you know, and, uh, and uh, goals. And, and I start from that. Any philosophy that says it does automatically means it's, it's, it's wrong. And let's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out some magic moment when, when goals and beliefs enter the, the you know, developmental and evolutionary stream. Mm -hmm. I, I don't take on any of that stuff. I, I, what I like is ideas that move science forward. Specifically, I like things that help you do experiments. I want frameworks that 
that are going to lead us to new experiments, new capabilities, and things that are testable. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's so so everything I say comes from that perspective. I I, I basically you know I I just I just uh, everything has to, has to lead that way. So 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 the 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 kind of uh, the framework that I've been working on is called TAME, T-A-M-E, and it stands for Technological Approach to Mind Everywhere. The idea is that, yeah, we, we have to be open, uh, open to testing which of the things around us have different degrees of agency. You can't just have feelings about it and, and, and assume you have to test it. You have to do uh, experiments using techniques from behavior science and neuroscience and then other, you know, cybernetics and so on. And so, and so for me, uh, a self is, is basically, um, a coherent centralized uh a, a bundle of events that has a few features it has it has a it, it has goal directed capacity in some space it has some um a, a boundary uh that sets what are the how, how how big of a goal can it possibly entertain right mm -hmm. that that determines the the kind of sophistication of that self it has uh, it has a mechanism of, uh, of of stress, meaning that it has preferences. Certain kind, certain state of uh, states of affairs are to be are, are to be avoided, and it expends energy to actually get into other kinds of uh, other kinds of states. And it's the owner of things like um, like memories, like preferences, like um, goals, of course, that belong to the system itself and not to any of the parts. So the pieces of the self hang together the way that a theorem hangs together right the individual if if just one thing is missing you don't have the theorem anymore a, a true theorem right if just one of the if just one of the lines is, is gone it only works it, it's a it's this like magical thing that only snaps into being when you have all of the parts holding holding each other and that's that's what a self is a self is a it's a it's a coherent cycle of measure measure compared to your preference and then act in a way that tries to get to some sort of outcome, and that's a very that's a very cybernetic definition. Um, it's a very kind of engineering definition. Mm -hmm. It's compatible with all sorts of implementations, you know, biological, non-biological, whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 kind of what I operate with. Mm -hmm. Could could we call that a, a homeostatic loop? Does that? Yeah. Well, I think I think a homeostatic loop is the is the is the basement of that. That's where it starts, right? A homeostatic loop is a minimal requirement. Now, some selves have lots more. Right, some selves have um, uh, all kinds of uh, bells and whistles on top of that. Mm -hmm. So you know, so for example, just to give you a, a small example, as you're doing this homeostatic loop where you measure something and then you see how how it's going and then you act, you might want to take measurements other places inside yourself. So for example, if you're a bacterium, yes, you're measuring the local um, sugar level, but mm -hmm. you might also actually want to measure your own metabolism because you don't really care about the sugar level. What you really care about is your metabolism. The sugar might be poison. There might be plenty of it, but it's somehow not good for you, right? So if the metabolism isn't going well, then... So once you do that, once you start measuring things about yourself, you have metacognition. You, that's the basement of being able to tell stories about yourself and who you are and what you are and so on that eventually scales up to confabulation in humans and so on. So, mm -hmm. so you know, yes, of, of, um, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, homeostatic loop is the beginning, but, but it scales up to, to you know, more, much more grandiose things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I just, I found that the idea of a self is not a thing. It's a system or maybe a set of nested systems with, with some sort of goal trying to maintain its integrity, right? Yeah. To me, that's a, a very compelling way to look at human psychology, right? You know, what what is your set point and what are the systems you're running or the homeostatic loops you're running in order to maintain that set point? 
Yeah. You know. Yep, I, I agree with that. Um, although, although I think you know, one of the one of the things that is my kind of um, hobby horse is um, trying to trying to break down um, binary categories. And even, I mean, I agree with you. I think I think the self is a is a is a set of uh, processes that, and so on. But when we say it's not a thing, um, what's an example of an actual thing? I mean, almost nothing is an example of an actual thing, right? Because almost everything you see is has some sort of life cycle that it comes into being it hangs around for a while although that may be a really long while if we're talking about mm -hmm. cosmological kinds of objects and then it disappears so mm -hmm. everything is kind of a process almost everything has a flux of things going in and out and of course of course you know evolution is great at and 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 may someday engineers will be good at making systems that are you know kind of like in robert rosen's um you know kind of uh, framework that are autopoetic and all that but but I just, you know, I just want to be a lot of people are really kind of think that it's a really profound sort of move to say that the self is is this, um, you know, this this process and almost everything is, you know, I don't I don't know that we've said actually all that much, because because if you know, because if you say yeah. that, if, if let's say we disagree, let's say somebody says no, a self is a thing. I say, well, what does that mean? Exactly? Okay, t tell me what it yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not sure what that would be. Well, know? I think. I think what it means on a, a very base sort of emotional psychological level is it means I am set. I have my identity. I have my personality, and you know I am who I am based on you know my upbringing or my genetics or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So don't ask me to change. And to me, on a on a very sort of experiential level, it it suggests a different set of possibilities to say I'm a process. I'm a process that's been set up in certain ways with certain set points. I have certain strategies to maintain those set points. And why don't I experiment with some other strategies or some other sets? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that makes total sense, sense to me. The way the way that I would frame it is um, the degree of th the degree of thingness or setness that you have yeah. is a continuum. It's a control knob, and yeah. you may yeah. think that your knob is set at you know twenty percent, meaning mm -hmm. that eighty percent of you is determined, and you hardly have the opportunity to change anything. And mm -hmm. somebody else can come along and you say, "Oh man, you're missing out. You're actually really plastic, and you can do a lot better than that." And so they would turn that knob in a different way. Yeah. But but I right I think I think we're we're not arguing about a binary category here. I think we're how and, and I think it's a good you know sort of empirical question. How much plasticity is there actually? Like like what can you mm -hmm. change and on what time scale and and what are the best um what are the tools right? What are the what are the approaches yeah. that we have for making changes? I think those are all great great good scientific questions. Yeah yeah and I really that I, for me personally I'm I'm on a very dedicated to exploring those questions, both for myself and for, you know, clients who come to me and are looking to make significant changes with, you know, a, a real sort of high level problem of, you know, of trauma, of stress, of, of depression, yeah. whatever it is. And it's like, okay, what can we do about that? We can mm -hmm. operate on the organizational scale of, of thoughts, you know, we can work with feelings, but maybe we can also work on, on other tiers of cognition. Yeah. Maybe we can work in terms of, you know, what, what's going on on a cellular level, what's going on mm -hmm. in our body mm -hmm. and what possible effects will that have on the way our brains function as well. You know, but I, I, I don't want to get, get too far ahead of, yeah. uh, because I think, I think there's a lot of work to do before we get to any sort of, uh, I don't know, sensible conversation of, of where that goes, because it's, it's very, it's very experimental. It's a lot mm -hmm. of it is, is really, you got You got to try it and see what works, see what doesn't. You yeah. Know, there's, there's just, you know, just, yeah, um, just just, uh, just while I remember it, um, do you know do you know the work of Albert Mason? Have you come across this stuff? No, I haven't. Oh, 
um, uh, it's it's a, you know I don't know if you want to take the time now to go to go into it, but but I can send you I can send you um, a link afterwards to some it's it's really brilliant stuff. It's a guy who he, he started out as a doctor, then became a hypnotist, uh, working with 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 um, dermatology you know in a dermatological setting, and then eventually became a a, a psychotherapist. And he explains why you know what what drove those moves, and and I think it's it's a very interesting slant on what you just said. I think one of the one of the most interesting sets of kind of approaches to that cross level um, relationship has to do with uh, biofeedback, uh, hypnosis, things like that. When you start to access layers of control that you, whatever that is, don't normally have. Now, it's you know, it's a funny thing. If I were to if I were to say to you, did you know that uh, I have uh, uh, conscious control over the resting potential, the voltage? of you know 30 percent of my body you 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 would say uh you're you're crazy you don't have conscious control over the voltage of your cells that's set by ion channels and by but of course when you move your body through voluntary muscle motion that's exactly what you're doing when you're laying in bed and you decide to get to to stick your you know stick your hand up and 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 then get up what are you doing you're 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 there's some there's something we call a voluntary and it's a whole other thing what that is but 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 there's some high level module that's decided that it's going to percolate a set of control uh control of events down to the point where the ion channels will open in your muscle and they will become depolarized and you will you will you know you'll raise your arm so so in fact you do have control over over very uh low level biophysical events now you don't think about it that way you don't think that ah potassium channel you know number seven billion and you know whatever open up uh you don't think about that but but that in fact is what is what happens so and then and then people can learn right so um people can learn all kinds of control over over uh, all sorts of body functions that they don't normally have and uh there's this whole you know issue of psycho dermatology where you can actually affect a lot of the physiology in your skin and in other organs via patterns of patterns of thought induced by uh, uh, signals that you get from a, from a therapist or a hypnotist or whoever so there's there's massive amounts of cross-level communication possible and it has to be that way because that's how it normally works that's that's what it is all day long for you to you know for you to walk around and uh, you know have perceptions and so on there that 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 multi-scale architecture is there all the time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so i don't know i mean i've got a long list of sort of interesting instances of that maybe i'll just throw a few out and you can kind of see what what appeals to you i mean so the sure. you could talk about the talk about bone memory muscle memory cardiac memory uh cellular placebo effect uh, cognitive illusions and failures of rationality for ant colonies i mean there's there's just a, a huge host of these really interesting instances where things that we don't typically associate with that level of organization seem to be present right yeah yeah i mean the mappings between things that we consider to be uh high level cognitive properties they they all I mean, and it has to be this way. If you if you take developmental biology and evolution seriously, yeah, there's phase transitions and so on. But you have to expect that somewhere there are basal versions of all this. So whatever it is that you have, you know, metacognition or or whatever it's going to be, there's some basal version of this somewhere that is like the basement kind of like what's the simplest, what's the minimal variant of that, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think you know you can you can we can we can tell and this is very much under development so i'm throwing out a bunch of ideas all this you know has to has to no doubt will change but but you can start thinking about very 
very kind of tiny things and it's and 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 it'd be way at the at the beginning of all of this this whole you know kind of um uh, scale up of intelligence and it all uh it all starts to make sense why why we see all this stuff in psychology I just just as as a simple example you're a, you're a you're a cell and uh and you have some sort of um by electrochemical network inside and you can do certain things you can take certain actions mm -hmm. now unlike unlike the modern ais which have all the power they want they never worry about the, you know where where their energy is coming from right that's one of the big kind of differences between current engineered ais and and real organisms or real cells is that if you're a cell you have metabolic limits you mm -hmm. you cannot afford to do everything that um to, to send every signal you may want to send right so what that means is that is that over over time selection will favor individual will favor little agents that are good at detecting causal power around them so you may find out that you know this action when i take it nothing much happens i can't really make much change in the world when i do this but this other thing over here yeah that seems to carry a lot of power in other words you're trying to figure out which knobs in the world carry the power for you to, to make it worthwhile for you to expend energy to twist them right to interact mm -hmm. with them mm -hmm. i think i think what that scales into is the the uh it, it has a, that, that ability to um to look around you and see causation right to to try to estimate that thing right there controls xyz and i want to control xyz so therefore i'm going to expend energy to interact with this thing right here right whatever whatever that might be that might be some sort of um you know secretion of some molecule or, or you apply force or something mm -hmm. the ability to see causality around you will eventually turn back on yourself and you will eventually, the same way that you recognize causally potent things in the world around you, will let you see, will let you recognize other animals and other creatures. And you may find out, you may find out that 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 creature right there, uh, he seems to be calling all the shots. And if I just communicate with that one, I can get cool things to happen. Right? That that mm -hmm. ability, eventually, you turn it on yourself, and you say, and you are able to say. Well, I'm, a, I'm inevitably what that leads to is a story of yourself with, as, as Dan Dennett calls it, um, a narrative center of gravity. It puts you in the center of this causal, um, uh, this, right? This, this causal picture of yourself. You start to tell stories to yourself about yourself to say, mm -hmm. I can do things. I'm causally, you know, I'm causally relevant. And I think that ends up why I, I don't believe you can have a, um, a, a, a proper in you know a, a high level intelligence that does not have the feeling of free will because that's exactly where these selves come from they come from looking around you picking out a collection of parts that you see some of them belong to you and some of them may not or whatever right so if it's you and you've got let's say let's say you're you know you've got prosthetics you've got a you know you've got a robotic leg and and you've got a, a, a bci a, a computer interface that lets you run the vacuum cleaner and then another one that's uh lets you um uh, a query uh, you know uh, uh, wikipedia for information you got all this stuff around you you will draw some kind of boundary around all of that stuff whether it's biological or whether who knew wherever it comes from and you will say that's me and i am a causal agent that that collection of stuff has causal power so now and and it goes all the way back to individual cells trying to figure out what in their world is worth um trying to control under limitations of metabolism so i think you could go from from that from just that fact of of needing to be frugal with your with your moves uh to this idea of eventually you become this complex thing that tells stories about yourself where you confabulate um and 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 uh 
you know, uh, this this gets back to the issue that 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 you were saying before that you know we're we're a, we're a malleable process, right? Not a thing that's set. Mm-hmm. And, and Nick, you, you know, Nick Nick Chater's stuff, the mind is flat. You know, you know this book. Yeah. So, so, so it's a really good book. You, you'd like it. I mean, I don't, I don't agree with everything in it, but I think it's very valuable. He talks about this idea of how much of the mind is generated on the fly. That is not through this like lengthy, you know, sort of background of here's all this baggage and you, it's stuff that's just generated on the fly. And one of my, one of my favorite examples, um, I don't know if it's from that book or from somewhere else, but one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, that, uh, if, if you have a if you have a human patient uh, and let's say for some medical reason epilepsy or whatever they um, they're putting electrodes into the brain and they put an electrode into this into the spot in the brain that makes you laugh mm-hmm. so so you're sitting there doing something something serious they trigger the thing you start laughing if if you are then asked hey why are you laughing the answer is never geez I don't know everything was pretty serious and then suddenly I started laughing that's weird that's never the answer the answer is oh I thought of something funny and obviously you yeah. did, all right? And so, and so what you're doing is you're confabulating on the spot a story that makes yourself make sense as a causal, as a causal agent. And I think you can track that all the way, you know, sort of, sort of to the beginning of trying to figure out what you are, where you are, and what is, uh, what is um, you know, what's the, what, what is out there in the world, um, uh, you know, uh, that, you can, uh, that you, can, you can interact with, uh, you know, given your limited resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that example you gave, I think that ties in with I think it was Friston's depiction of a brain as like a self perpetuating prediction machine. So basically, you know, we just go around the world making predictions. And anytime anything doesn't conform to our predictions, we basically have two options, either we change our observation and just say, well, actually, I did see what I predicted, or we trick ourselves into thinking that we predicted what we saw. But the, and you know, depending on the, the situation, our brain might choose one strategy or another. But this idea that we're simply observing reality as it is and making calm observations about it, you know, uh, impartial observations about it seems to be pretty flawed. You know, it's, it's, it's. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know how that, that, that model, you know, this reality as it is, I don't even, I'm not, I'm not even sure what that, what that really means. I mean, we have to, right. If we, if we, if we take seriously that, we are an embodied um, kind of thing with with some some sensors and not others. It's it's clear that we are only seeing a tiny corner of, uh, you know, I like like and and this is and this is so it's actually it's actually very pervasive because it's the reason it's the reason why we find it so hard to deal with unconventional intelligences right i mean look as we're born all of our our sensors are basically facing outwards so we are very good at recognizing agency in middle-sized medium speed things moving in three-dimensional space right yeah. we see a crow crows are doing cool things that your dog your you know the monkeys whatever and like that's easy to recognize as intelligence but imagine if imagine if you if you grow up with a um with a an immediate uh, sort of uh, uh, almost like biofeedback sense of what your blood chemistry was and what your what your um, pancreas was doing at any moment in time, mm-hmm. you would I think then have a very clear picture of physiological problem space. You would recognize your pancreas as being somewhat intelligent and solving these problems and so on. Then, then we could, but we don't have a training set for that. We're not used to it, so we see these mm-hmm. things like how can that be? How can that be intelligence? We can't, you know. And and we know, you know, you can uh, you can. I mean, I've always thought to myself, wow, you know, if I, if I didn't if I wasn't able to see. I would feel really impoverished, but the reality is, yeah, but, but right now I'm not seeing most of the spectrum. I could have yeah. so much information around about the stuff and I don't miss it because it's, I've never had it. 
right? So it seems like so. So this seems like baseline, right? What what you can sense now seems like baseline, but it's mm-hmm. tiny. So so you know you know the we are only able to um uh, uh, to comprehend a very small amount of what's going on around us, and you know, and we make and we make models as best as we can. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if we if we zoom out from that and and we say okay, so we are uh, perceiving a very small percentage of possible things we could be perceiving. We're not observing them in any sort of objective fashion at all. We're these sort of nested systems interacting with each other, sometimes functionally, sometimes dysfunctionally. We're what I think you call a metazoan swarm, uh, just a a sack of cells doing its thing. Um, We have the illusion of free will, as you said, Mm -hmm. right? What do you think it's possible to say anything more than we have the illusion of free will? Like what, what does, does it even make sense to say, yeah, but do we really have free will? I I, want to ask the question, but it's it's kind of like, I I don't even know if that's a valid question. Like what, what it's a, it's a very yeah it's a very slippery beast um and i i you know I, I'm, I'm not going to claim to have uh to 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 really have solved anything but but i'll give you some some thoughts about it this, this is how i've been thinking about it so i think from the perspective of if you if you zoom in on a particular uh, of, uh action that a living system has taken let's say a human did something and you zoom in um to the to the molecular events um right at that at that time mm-hmm. then i think i think dan, dan dennett in his in his book on 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 free will uh was right on he had this very logical very simple really critique that went like this we at at that micro level we only know two kinds of events there are events that are caused by some other event right so something happening and caused something else to happen Mm-hmm. Or late more more recently, we know we've learned there's one other kind of event, which is quantum indeterminacy, which is an event that literally isn't caused by anything, right? That's that's mm-hmm. right. It just it just happens, and 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 that's it. It's not caused by anything. Neither of those things are what humans mean when they say free will. It, you 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 are not free because because you did something because the chemistry the chemical state led to another chemical state and that triggered your muscles. That's not freedom. Nor are you free if you say, "Oh man, I've got so much freedom. I just my, my body just does stuff at random. I've got free." That's not what we mean by freedom, right? So so Dan so 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 his point was basically, we don't know about any other way to to the, the, the science gives us no other options. So therefore, the human version of free will is 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 um it's like it's like it's like imagining a you know a square circle you kind of think you can have one but you can't really have one because it's not it's not logically coherent right mm-hmm. i i think i think any story of free will has to grapple with that because that is that is absolutely real right so so i think i think that's a very very potent critique so uh if you but, but however however it has an interesting limitation it assumes that what we've done is zoom in to that action, and I think there's a big problem with always. It's it's basically it's basically a, re, a you know a, a, a fundamentally a reductionist approach, meaning that everything has to be looked at at the lowest possible scale. So I think so I think he's if you look at the lowest possible scale, you're right. There's nothing in there's nothing for for a given action that you take now. There's nothing that can usefully be called free will. You don't control the next thought you're going to have. Sometimes they're great, and you say, "Oh, I just came up with this greatest thing." What do you mean you came up with it? You did nothing. You were you were in the shower, and it and, and it happened, right? Or or conversely, you do something you do something horrible, and then your lawyer says, "Did you see the chemi- the, the chemical traces in his brain?" Like, of course that happened, right? So at the at the at at that moment, there's really nothing that that can be called free will, and I'm not sure there's anything that can be called um, a subject for um, 
for, for blame or credit the way that we normally think about it at that tiny level. However, yeah. right? However, I don't think that's the right level to look at it at. I think the right place to look for, for free will is in the large scale. And this, and, and what I mean by that, and this, this gets us back to um, uh, this, 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 why, why I think, you know, the, this whole, the Buddhism and other practices, why, where they're so, 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 so uh, on top of this is that you don't have any free will about what you're going to do right now. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's going to be what it's going to be. However, what you do have the opportunity to do through repeated micro actions, right? So, so your, your free will is incredibly, it's like, um, it's like infinitesimals in calculus. They're, they're almost zero, but there's a way to add them up to integrate them that they're not zero eventually. So what that means is that through micro actions, repeated, repeated committed work, you can alter your causal structure to make the probability distribution for your future behaviors to be different so that you can't control the thought you're going to have right now. But if you make a commitment every day to do certain things, you actually can increase or decrease the probability of similar thoughts in the future. So if you if you work really hard and you study and you, you read interesting things, you're going to have more interesting th things, thoughts later on. If yeah. you meditate, if you go to, I don't know, anger management or whatever, they, you know, if you do martial arts, whatever you're going to do, um, you, the key is repetition because no one thing ever does it. It has to be lengthy, um, long term practice that changes your causal structure as a uh, as a as a self and therefore it, 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 will, it will change the, 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 um, the tendency to have certain kind of thoughts, to take certain kind of actions. Mm -hmm. And that's where your freedom lies. Your freedom yeah. does not lie in any one, one action. It's in the commitment to change what's going to happen later on. That's my yeah. story of free will. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. And I, I think um, can maybe, I'm not sure if it's adding a little bit to that or pushing back on it, but it's like we as humans, have the ability to choose what repetitive actions we're going to do. We can create our strategies. So there's some part of us, some level of cognition that can say, I want to be more at peace. So I am therefore going to do these micro strategies necessary in order to, to have that happen. And so, as you say, I think, I think the idea of scale is, is fundamental, right? If we're looking on a molecular scale, we might say, okay, yeah, there's no free will, but when we come up to, to these higher levels of cognition and you know, it comes back to what do we define as ourself, right? If if the self is the self, then no, probably no free will. But if we say through the the combination of these homeostatic loops or nested tiers of cognition or whatever you want to call them, there is a, a higher order of organization of you know what we call intelligence, and that that order has the ability to affect other orders, and maybe through those other orders, thereby retroactively affect itself. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah, something I, we could call free will. I, I think I think that's that's very yeah that's 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 very compatible with with what I was saying and you know the and, and the only thing I would push back on is I, again I don't I don't like the binary notion of no free will I like different sizes different scales of free will so so mm -hmm. I do think that cells have little tiny nano free wills what does it look like it looks like it looks like physics and it looks like least action models and it looks like right it of, of course that's what it looks like because when you zoom into minimal systems you're going to see minimal free will right when we see when we see our xenobot uh, you know it's a collection of skin cells and it's you know traversing in one direction all of a sudden it sort of turns around and goes back why did it do that 
that's a nano, of course, that's a nano version of free will. And somebody will say, well, I zoomed in and all I saw was chemistry and I can see what caused it. Well, of course you can. What else would be underneath other than chemistry? Of course it's chemistry, but, but it's not, no, no one's saying it's magic. But, but those kinds of things, that's what larger scale free will is made of, the kind that we, that we recognize as human free will, because these, these loops get more and more complex and more and more recursive and spread out over time. And so the thing, you know, the way to exercise free will is through this uh, everyday rain or shine, I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing because I'm committed to changing my own causal structure. Everything changes your causal structure. Every memory you have, you know, everything you do is gonna alter you in some way, but you're committed to changing yourself, which is, uh, which is, which is quite linked to this idea of not having a, a self that's set in stone because you're, you know, you're already, you're already committed to that. And so, yeah, I think it's just, uh, I, I think like everything else, it's a, it's a, it's a scale. It's, it's getting the right scale for the phenomenon that you're talking about. Yeah. 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 I've just, I've just looked at the clock. I realize we're, we're coming up on an hour and a half. Um, I guess, man, there's, a, there's still a lot I want to cover. Um, but maybe, maybe we can zoom all the way out. Um, just take you up on this, this idea of scale and talk about, uh, you as an individual, like you're, you're immersed in all of this very sort of detailed work, doing experiments, really trying to get to some, some very deep questions on a, a practical level. But like, I'm really interested, how do you apply this to your life? Like what just, you know, for, for a, a starters, like what are, what are the practices that you have in order to influence your system in a way that you consider to be beneficial to you? Or do you meditate? Do you, you know, what, what do you do? What's your, what's your day to day? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a it's a funny question. Uh, only because, um, uh, yeah, I, I you know I I I'm not, I guess I guess yeah if, I don't know if anybody is interested in what I what I personally do, but um, uh, <laughs> well, like, I mean, I, let me ask it in a different way. Like when when you're when you're describing all of these these different ways of understanding what is a self, what is free will, you know, I'm constantly thinking, okay, how do I apply this to my life? How do I what, what are the lessons I can learn? Because I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to go and do any, any experiments with Xenobots. I'm trying to figure out, is this a deeper way I can understand myself, help other people to understand themselves? Yeah. How yeah. can I apply this on a conscious level? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm just interested in, in, you know, how do you do that personally? How do you take all of this and apply it to yeah. the, a level of free will that, uh, or, or volition that, that makes sense in, in your life? Yeah, I, th I think the things, uh, you know, so, so, so the thing that is the most, to me, of all of this stuff, that's the most relevant on a personal level that we can all use is is this idea of long-term plasticity and the idea that uh when you think about others as you think about what do i react to do i blame or do i give credit or do i you know how could you do that right and then and then uh you sort of think oh you know what what, what does that really mean let's let's break it down what, what was what was what does it really mean that that person could have done otherwise right mm -hmm. and I think it helps. I think it helps to see, you know, kind of relationship in, in in relationships in a in a different way when you take seriously this notion that we are all battling w w the parts of our mind that are that is flat. That's basically just coming up with with stories on the go versus the things that are uh, a product of long you know long habits. And to think about the habits are where the where the pressure points are. It's, it's not anything I'm going to do now with to, to change either my own or anybody else's behavior. It's 
it's it's what are the what are the what are the pressures that are worth putting on yourself or in, in relationships that where, where is it worthwhile to put to put forth energy you know who, what what's really going to change and what are the best ways to to, to make that change um those those though you know those those kinds of things uh i think uh i i, I think are practical you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah are you familiar with john gottman his his research on couples yeah. his uh Pretty interesting guy. He's a psychologist. He's had a lab for I don't know 30, 40 years studying couples basically in, in like a fake hotel with all kinds of video cameras, and he'll do urine mm. samples and blood samples and stuff. And basically, he's determined. I think it's seventy eight percent of all marital conflict will never be resolved. Um, you know, it's we yeah. try really hard to change one another, but but as you say, it's it, we got to play the long game, right? It's yeah, it's yeah. with ourselves and and with other people. Yeah. And, and, and really, I don't know, and I don't know if it's just me, and I, I think I've always been this way, but the, I, I kind of, in my head, time goes by really fast, like really fast. And, and I always feel like everything is, uh, uh, everything is temporary, you know, when that, like, I, like I really feel that. And I'm not saying it's good or bad, or it's, it's, you know, it's not particularly pleasant necessarily, but, but it's just this idea that, you know, uh, I don't feel like anything sticks around for very long. Mm -hmm. And so it just, yeah, every everything is everything is flux and you do the most good you can and you move, you know, you sort of move forward and uh, yeah, it's just it's just it's the, the impermanence that that impermanence is something that and I, I'm not saying it, it, it came out of um, any of this work that I did. It's just I've, I've always felt that even as a kid, I was I was never in a hurry to grow up. I felt like, yeah, oh, yeah, this is I can see this happening. Like, it's just mm -hmm. flying by. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I mean, on on that same sort of. Uh, I don't know that that trend of thought the the way you describe i mean both the work you're doing and the way you've described it i think really puts pressure on this this idea that i think most of us have of a, a sharp division between sort of engineered systems and biological systems between yeah. what's been um evolved and what's what's coming right and a lot of yeah. people i think yeah. including myself <clears throat> sometimes look with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear at you know what is the future going to bring with these super intelligent ai systems these hybrid bot cyborg you know yeah, entities yeah. and and i guess i i find myself uh, as i read your work consistently sort of wondering how do you, how do you feel about all this like do you just see it as it it's sort of the tsunami that's coming and you might as well just make do is it really exciting for you and you know you can't wait to get an implant and be connected to you know who knows what like what how yeah. do you how do you consider all this how do you how do you experience it yeah, um, well, a couple of things. The first thing is that I think it's really important to have a, a, a perspective, meaning that if, if, if I went back in time to our primitive ancestors and I said, you know what's going to happen in the future? We're going to lift to, we're going to lift to, to, to 90 years old. And when you're older, your teeth aren't going to fall out and you'll be wearing this thing on your face that lets you see even when you're old, you'll be able to see really well this this, this glass thing. And by the way, I'm going to have a thing in my pocket that answers questions for me about things that I don't actually know. And uh, and if I break my leg, I'm going to have this thing with this thing called the wheel that I'm just going to roll like roll around for a while until the leg heals. And if I get a wound, I'm not going to get infected. I, the, you're basically Superman at that point, right? They're like, I can't even, I, a whole society of these beings, like, what are they even up to? 
oh, we're going to Mars. That's what we're up to. What? Like, you know, so so let's let's have a perspective that let's not pretend that 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 we are somehow normal now and that anything that happens in the future is scary and abnormal. This is absolutely not normal. That's the first thing. The second thing is I, I don't like normal. Right. This this idea that it's natural and then we're doing something unnatural. Natural sucks. Natural is the outcome of of a blind, you know, sort of meandering evolutionary process that uh, that that optimizes for biomass. That's it. Not happiness, not intelligence, just biomass. I, I don't like it. I think we can do way better than that. Right. And I think we have to right? the, the, the it, to me. It's a kind of moral cowardice to say that everything's great. Let's just not screw it up. We're not going to No, things are not great. There are massive disparities. There are massive uh, suffering, both animal and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and human. All, all kinds of issues. We it is on us as sentient agents to do better than evolution did. So I see this. Uh, I see this as uh, now. Now we could. There's a million ways we're going to screw it up. I'm sure of that. So I'm not painting this as some sort of uh, uh, rosy, rosy future. But staying standing still is is cowardly, and it's not an option. That's mm-hmm. that's that's how I see it. And I think that. Um, the, and, and then the other thing is uh, to, and, and I apologize, I, I do have a heartbreak in about two minutes, but, um, okay. but I'm happy to come back and we can do the, you know, we can do more of this yes, if you want. Yes, but, right. But I, but I think that, uh, I think that this issue of, you know, well, what, we're not going to look like humans anymore. What's a, what's a human, right? Do you really care about your genetics? I don't think so. Do you really care that you don't have, uh, that, that your parts are made of, um, you know, carbon instead of something else? No, I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. what makes a human is a particular level of, uh, of, of care. I think it's a particular level of moral concern where you're able to, 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 to physically care in the linear range about some, uh, some range of other beings. Mm-hmm. And whatever bodies we're in, as long as we maintain or improve that level of care, great let's let's swap it all out uh let's go to the stars whatever it's going to be uh it's 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 care and 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 moral capacity to to care about other sentient beings the rest of it is is you know details that can swap they can change hmm. Hmm. Well, a lot to unpack there i think we'll have to we'll have to leave that for for great. next time um, i'll definitely take you up on that offer i'd, I'd love to explore awesome. this, this further yeah yeah anytime uh, thank you very much really appreciate your time Thank you. This is great. Yeah. Thank you for the nice conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we'll be in touch. Take it easy. Thanks. All right. You too. Take care. Bye.